welcome back to Word Up with Danny Katz. I am your host, Danny Katz. I am an author, journalist, and a quantum languaging coach and consultant. What that means is that I teach people how language programs consciousness, how language programs reality at large, and how to transform reality and evolve our consciousness with language. I've also been known to cultivate and share an opinion or two or 12 about culture and consciousness and how they are evolving, devolving, and being manipulated by the powers that were. Here at Word Up, we are devoted to fostering critical thinking while supporting you in becoming your most authentic, empowered, liberated, realized, amazing version of yourself. Our every show aims to expand your consciousness, raise your frequency, sharpen your critical thinking skills, and make you giggle. (laughs) And think. Given the radical uptick in censorship over the past few years, combined with the complete co-opting slash decimation of my own personal industry, journalism, I started Word Up to have a free speech-friendly platform in which to engage exploratory, solutions-based conversations with visionaries, mystics, original thinkers, and rebel badasses who are helping to make the world more wonderful. The first half of my interviews run between 30 to 90 minutes and are always posted here for free public listening. The second halves are reserved for paid supporters on my Patreon and my Locals platforms, where for as little as $5 a month, you can access all of my second half conversations along with oodles of other bonus content and opportunities to drop in with me, to drop in with our High Vibe tribe, and lots of other awesome things. In addition to interviews, Word Up also features quantum languaging upgrades, planetary service announcements, and propaganda analysis, which I call Spot the Propaganda. Thank you so much for tuning in and for sharing your sacred attention with me and our high vibe tribe of change makers. Be sure to click that subscribe button so you can stay abreast of our every episode. Thank you for also clicking the like button, for sharing far and wide, and for leaving some kind words as a review as you are authentically inspired. As well, if you are gleaning any value whatsoever from these shows, consider supporting me on Locals and or Patreon. And as you are wanting to learn more about my quantum languaging coaching and consulting services or nab copies of my books, find me on dannycats.com as well as on quantumlanguaging.com. Okay, I think that's it for our housekeeping. Buckle up and prepare to enjoy this episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. Hey, superstars, welcome back to another episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. Today, I am joined once again by my dear friend, Robert Forty. Robert Forty is an academic, a psychedelic scholar, an author, a publisher, an editor, a multidimensional thinker. And he came on the show to talk to us about the psychology of non-perception, which he's been studying for quite a while. It's a super lively conversation. I know you're gonna dig it. Before we jump in, I'm reminding you to click that subscribe button to like, to share, to comment, to click the notification bell so that you can be notified of my every next video drop. 
And uh, given that I'm hearing uh, whispered rumors of people being unsubscribed from my YouTube or that my YouTube content is being suppressed, your wisest move in staying abreast of my every offering, including my upcoming and last ever pop propaganda homeschool course for teens is to sign up for my newsletter at dannycats.com. That ensures that we get to stay in touch regardless of whatever big tech fuckery is on the agenda <laughs> uh, that day. So as always, the first half of this podcast is free for the public. The second half is available for paid supporters on both my locals and Patreon communities. Those uh, links are below in the comments as well, dannycats.locals.com, patreon.com slash dannycats, where for as little as $5 a month, you get access to all of my second half conversations. You get oodles of bonus content, including unpublished writings, advance notice of webinars, workshops, live events, special discounts, opportunities to drop in with me one-on-one, -on -one, as well as our community. So choose the platform of your choice, support me there so that you can access the second half of this conversation and all of my conversations. I think that does it for housekeeping. Buckle up and prepare to enjoy my conversation with Robert Forty on the psychology of non-perception. So the psychology of non-perception. What are we talking about today? Why are we talking about this? Fill me well, in. Well, no, I mean, um, the psychology of non-perception is just a, a concept that flew into my head one day when I was riding my bike along um, Westcliff in Santa Cruz, along the Monterey Bay. And I realized it was something that I've been trying to understand pretty much my whole life. Like why, why and how is it that people don't see the obvious, especially when the obvious is kind of disturbing? Kind and of? <laughs> well, I mean, when I was a, when I was a little boy, the first thing was this um, stream that I used to play at that was my paradise. And then as the um, as development grew in our area, um, the, the stream became polluted and, and the fish and the salamanders and the frogs were dying. And, and but hardly anybody really cared because um, there were buildings going up and it was going to reduce the tax rate. But for me, this was a sign that, um, you know, overdevelopment is um, ruining the environment and that we ought to be a little more mindful about the rate that we consume and what's really important. And then, um, you know, some people got it. Some people were just sort of naturally attuned to um, deeper realities. And some people were swept away by social conditioning and what was trendy or seemed right, you know, the advertising. And then, um, and then the psychology of non-perception really jumped into my consciousness um, in the mid-1980s when I became very interested suddenly in the um, Kennedy assassination, mm -hmm. which I hadn't ever really looked at carefully until, um, you know, about 1980 four or five, when somebody showed me a, a copy, a slow motion copy of the Zabruder film. And you can see, obviously, that Kennedy is shot from the front. 
Right. And this is something that happened just 20 years ago. Like, how is it that we are, as a society, almost completely oblivious to this most, you know, incredibly incredible event, you know, a loved president shot in the face in broad daylight and nobody's prosecuted for it. This flimsy theory is thrown out. That guy shot and it's cleaned up and then it's gone and we're going on. I mean, it was obviously a coup d'etat. And and people are just completely oblivious to it. So since you have been examining the psychology of non-perception for such a long time, have you come to conclusions as to why people can't see what seems obvious to a lot of us? Yeah. So I'm beginning, you know, I'm writing I'm writing another book now. I'm writing a memoir and I'm um, so I'm starting to put some meat on these bones of the psychology of non-perception. What are the what are some of the factors that lead to this, to our society being so mind controlled? Right. And so um, the next big event was 9-11, of course. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing that we were all just shocked and awed by this dramatic event disoriented and then this narrative thrown at us which was willingly swallowed up by a lot of people including myself for the first couple years and then you just take you pause and you look at it and you realize it makes absolutely no sense at all but hold up hold up let's slow down so you bought into it for the first couple years what was the first thing or exposure or bit of information that created some doubt and invited a deeper examination? Well, um, the first thing for me was a, was a little film called um, In Plain Sight, mm-hmm. where, I, where I was able to really examine the video footage of the Pentagon. Yep. Seeing that that hole in the Pentagon wall could not have been caused by a plane. There was no plane wreckage. The, the hole was close to the ground. It just like suddenly seemed crazy, impossible. And then I began to look into it and I found so many other things that were obviously impossible. And then facts added up, study, research, like, <clears throat> you know, the way the buildings come down perfectly symmetrically. That looked to me like a controlled demolition. But, but it I, didn't look like a controlled demolition demolition for the first two years when you were buying into it, or were you just not really looking at it that closely? You know, for me personally, I didn't really look into it that closely for for personal reasons. I mean, <clears throat> for me, actually, you know, a family member, a family member of mine was involved in the operation, and I was in New York that day. And involved how? well involved in the financial aspects of it. He told me um, a couple of days after it happened, we were having dinner in New York and he told me, he said, we knew this was going to happen. And I said, you knew this was gonna happen? And he said, yes, boys from the government advised our firm. Now this person, he was my brother-in-law and he was a a senior vice president of a very large asset management company in New York called Alliance Capital Management. And he was um, he managed uh, uh, what was called their high yield global hedge fund, a multi-billion dollar hedge fund of defense and energy stocks and these things. And so um, he was uh, 
He told me that boys from the government advised his firm on matters that pertain to business. And I just, you know, kind of went in one ear and out the other. I was just beginning a relationship with a, a very special woman. And I mentioned it to her and she kind of dismissed it. And I was involved in um, negotiating a film deal for my Leary book. And I just decided I wasn't going to go into those conspiracies for now. I was going to make a movie. And so I, I didn't even talk about it. And whenever anybody mentioned it to me, and this this will get back to the psychology of non-perception, when anybody mentioned it to me, like, oh, it was an inside job, it was a controlled demolition, I would say, you know, stop. That's just, that's too outrageous. Couldn't possibly be, you know, don't even bring stuff like that. It makes, you know, serious political analysis more difficult to do. Forget that. Well, wait, that's hold up. I'm curious to know how you rectify that, because at that point, it sounds like you had already started to question the Kennedy assassination story. So why was that conspiracy open for exploration, but the other one not? Well, again, it wasn't totally rational on my part. It was, you know, I spent I spent several years reading just about every book there was on the Kennedy assassination. And it's really kind of a it's kind of a thankless task. You know, you become alienated from your community. I was very involved, as you know, in the psychedelic work and, um, you know, made a shift into political consciousness. And my friends, my colleagues in the psychedelic world, um, academics that I wanted to, that I approached to do a PhD on this concept would say like, oh no, you know, you're a conspiracy, th you'll be labeled a conspiracy theorist. And I was a victim to some of these um, techniques that we're going to explicate of the psychology of non-perception. Why are people so uh, adverse to seeing something that's obvious? Yep. And so, um, yeah, I was a victim of that. Like I said, I was involved in a, a really um, special relationship with a, with a really special person. We were madly in love and she, and she her father was, a, was high up in the FBI and she just didn't like political conspiracies. So I, I just decided to leave that aside for a couple years until we split up. Do you do you ever look back on that and wonder at the coincidence of like, wow, I started dating a woman whose father was an FBI insider around the same time that I started to question this narrative that was being used to enslave Americans? Yes, I look at all these things. It's crazy. It gets even crazier than that because this this particular woman who was my became my partner is um, <clears throat> actually a very famous um, movie star. Mm -hmm. And she's um, especially famous for her leading role in um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, mm -hmm. which is a movie, as you must know, um, about the Nazis acquisition of occult power and mm -hmm. mind control in this in this uh, thing. So we had connected and, you know, that was another part of it when I look back on this. Plus the fact that um, my brother-in-law who had confided and blurted out that he knew, I was offered a job in that same major um, Wall Street when I graduated from college. So there were all these, you know, it's like destiny for me to sort out all these levels of intrigue and interest in it. And so, you know. Do you ever wonder if given, because before that you'd been questioning the JFK, You've been heavily steeped in the psychedelic movement and the psychedelic community. Did it ever occur to you that you might be being handled by these people who appeared in your life at this time? 
No, I think I might have been handled a bit in the psychedelic work. Mm-hmm. Still, I'm still trying to understand that better. I mean, my primary, the primary um, instigator of my work in the psychedelic world was a man named Frank Barron. Mm-hmm. Um, was involved with the CIA in ways that are still not quite clear to me. And he prodded me when I was uh, in my last year of college to to do this, to basically um, restart the psychedelic movement. Mm-hmm. He was a very close friend of Timothy Leary, and he made introductions for me and asked me to organize a conference where I brought together all these people. And, and then I was um, invited down to Esalen, where I worked very closely with Stan Groff for a long time. And then I was led up to meet Alexander Shulgin, who was uh, taught me and my friends how to make MDMA. And I was part of the whole early propagation of that. So I I wonder about that. And uh, unfortunately, uh, Frank died in 2002. And so I never really got a chance to dig out. That was um, before I really got into the greater extent of MKUltra that you and I have talked about. Right. You know, it's a, it's it's still a complicated it's a complicated story that's not entirely clear to me to what extent I was handled but I don't think that my um I think that I started to break out of this matrix right around 9/11 when I realized oh my god you know how how incredibly um corrupt and extensive the corruption is in our society mm-hmm. and um and it was uh, you know, it, it sent me into a real tailspin. I have to admit, you know, I was really depressed for a couple of years, seriously depressed and um, <clears throat> alienated from a whole community, from my family. And that's another aspect of this. Like, why do people, why are they unable or why do they refuse to see the obvious is because sometimes it can be very, uh, it's alone. It can be very lonely. It can isolate you. It's, um, it's terrifying. Yeah. And um, so let me let me like go back a little bit and and talk about some of the um, kind of psychological aspects that that help us understand the psychology of non-perception. And um, I don't know if you and I have ever discussed the research of a man named Solomon Ash. Have we? I don't think so. So this is extremely important. Solomon Ash was a um, a Jewish. Polish refugee of of Poland in the late 1930s who came over here to the United States to resume his career as a psychological researcher. Mm-hmm. And the official story is that he was he was appalled at the way his Polish countrymen and women kind of fell in line with the Third Reich and that and that um, came to America and he, and thought that the american spirit of independence would would make us um immune to this sort of conformity and so he he designed these really very brilliant experiments which anybody that's taken a psych 101 class will recognize them probably and so you know they're the famous solomon ash ex- conformity experiments they gave birth really to the whole field of social psychology in the United States, beginning in, in the early 19, in the mid, late 1930s. So here's what Ash did. Imagine that you're in college and somebody comes up to you and says, um, invites you to take part in an experiment 
saying it's a test of your visual acuity and we'll give you we'll give you five bucks and you say sure and so you're led into a room where there are 19 other people now you think these 19 other people are just like you brought in off the street to be have their eyesight tested but really they're confederates in the experiment mm -hmm. you're the only one that's being studied here and so Solomon Ash goes to the blackboard and he draws four lines. One line is eight inches, one line is 12 inches, one line is 10 inches, one line is four inches. And you are asked to say which two lines are the same length. The answer is obvious and unambiguous. This line is eight inches and that line is eight inches. He goes around the room, he asks everybody, everybody gives the wrong answer. Now it's your turn. What do you do? I give the right answer, but I'm used to being the pariah. <laughs> so when I, when I say it like this, that's what everybody says, that they would defy the group and give the right answer. But actually when Solomon Ash did this, and I believe the first time he did this was at Swarthmore College, which is, you know, a super elite college. 75 to 80% of the people defy their own senses and give the wrong answer in order to conform to the group. <sighs> so this experiment has been replicated countless times thousands thousands of thousands of studies different versions of it but that's pretty much what they get that 20 15 to 30 percent of the people will rather conform to a group than say the truth now that's rather extraordinary so that's the first thing hold up is that i'm curious to know in terms of Solomon Ash's research, is that like, was there something wrong with these people? Is there some sort of like traumatic wound we can point to that has like maligned these people's sense of integrity or what is right? Or is this just like baseline humans are gross? These were the best and the brightest. Like I said, Ash, Ash began these experiments at Swarthmore. Right. I believe he went on to Yale. In what year? Uh, late 1930s, it started. Here's what I'm, this is why I'm asking, because um, I spent a brief period of time studying the art coming out of Japan, which is all very like cartoonish and like kind of S&M kitty cats. And what I realized was this culture has a wound called Hiroshima that has them seeking out the comfort of like soft fluffy animals or you know because there's this giant wound so that's what i'm wondering if there was like something similar or comparable um to the american psyche that we can point to that inspired this response or if it's just humans baseline setting well these, these are great questions and, and to really drill into them would be a, a long study and that's again what the what the history of solomon ash's research is got it uh, I will say this, that, you know, as I already said, that the um, these were the best and the brightest at the finest universities, Ivy League. And um, it was actually it was actually these studies 
that helped inspire one of the major psychedelic movements of the 20th century. So Frank Barron, who I mentioned, was my, my mentor, my, my dear friend and teacher who I trusted and loved. And um, he, was, he was interested in the 10 to 15% who didn't conform. Right. Made them different. Yeah. He devoted his career to this. And he, he did psychological profile. He was one of the leading personality psychologists of the last century. And he wanted to figure out why those people didn't conform and how to make more of those people. Mm. But he found that there were, there were significant differences in their worldview. Okay. For instance, for instance the people who were the non-conformers were... Um, believed um, that nature was benevolent. Their basic worldview was that nature was friendly mm-hmm. versus the conformers who had a sense of like the hostility of nature. So this might get into your question about trauma. Yep. They had a basically kind of a fear-based orientation to reality. And so maybe they needed the comfort of the group. Mm-hmm. They, were more, they were more outer directed. They looked for they looked to institutions and leaders for the sense of authority, whereas the creative people, um, the nonconformers, had more of a confidence in themselves and in nature. And I just want to ask about what you just said. You said the creative people, the nonconformers. So was that another link that he made that the nonconformers were more creative than the conformers? Yes, that's that, that's right. That in fact, that became really the focus. Of Frank Barron's career. He's, he's well known as one of the foremost researchers into the psychology of creativity. Got it. Makes creative people, not just artists, but creative in every endeavor. Okay. Right. So it was actually, um, so he began to interview creative people and just find out things about their worldview. And um, eventually he was on a, um, on a study that had gone down to Mexico to study a group of expatriate writers and that's when he learned of the psychedelic mushroom okay. in, the, in the late 1950s. And he took it. Okay. He, was this, he thought that he had discovered the Holy Grail, that this was the thing that could shift that perspective from nature being hostile to nature being friendly. Mm-hmm. Shift the locus of authority. Like once you have a very profound mystical experience, psychedelic or otherwise, um, you you learn you have a great respect for the power of your own consciousness right. and be more interdirected kind of thing. And so that was his that was his incentive, and that was the basis that he turned on his best friend, Timothy Leary, yep. and, and why they started that project at Harvard. Okay, cool. Yeah. So that's um, that's one part of it. So there's there's the Ash conformity studies is one of is one of the real pillars of the psychology of non-perception. Mm-hmm. And you can see this um, enacted when you look at um, you know, the, way the, media w- the way the media handled the Kennedy assassination. This is where you must know the phrase, the weaponization of the phrase conspiracy theorist comes yeah. from. You know, we have, we've seen the CIA manual where they say, you know, like people are starting to disbelieve the Warren Commission, what are we supposed to do? And they said, well, the first thing you do is you ridicule them. 
you know, humans are so very susceptible to ridicule, being ostracized and laughed at. And so that's how the phrase conspiracy theorist gets weaponized. Right. In the media, you can see, oh, you're one of those, you know, you know, one of those people. Okay. <clears throat> so um super effective. Like I gotta give the CIA props for that one. It really has legs. Like here we are, what, 60 years later, and people are still using the phrase conspiracy theorists to mock people and to shut down discourse. No, it's it's really incredible. I mean, before 1964, a conspiracy theorist was an attorney, was it was a sociologist, you know, it was a person who approached complex sociological or political events with um, a scientific method. Mm -hmm. You look at data, you come up with a theory, and then you try to prove it. Right. And they, they flip that around. Oh, yeah. When you, I mean, the, the psychological sophistication of the social engineers in the CIA and Tavistock Institute and British MI6 and Mossad, that's not just CIA, this, the, the social engineering uh, operation is multinational, as we know. Let's just not pick on the CIA here. Right. And it's also, and let me go back a little bit. I, I found this out later. Those Solomon Ash studies were funded by the Office of Naval Intelligence. Whoa, okay, now we gotta really slow down because Naval Intelligence is like the crux of evil military secret ops. So yeah. what do we do with that? Like five seconds ago, I was all into the Solomon Ash studies. Now that you're telling me this? Yeah. So this is, I'm just sharing some of my kind of confusion about this, because when I, I have an undergraduate degree in experimental social psychology, and I was told, as I began the story, that Ash was curious, thought that Americans wouldn't be susceptible. Right. And they began these studies. But then I learned just, you know, a few years ago, that they were funded by the Office of Naval Intelligence. And now I'm wondering if they were just kind of market testing to see what they could actually get away with. A thousand percent. Yeah. And I'll, let me just jump before here and bring up, bring up our, our dear friend, Bobby Kennedy, because in his, in his, uh, <laughs> his great, in his great book on um, Anthony Fauci, he mentions some of these similar studies in the field of social psychology the famous Solomon um, Stanley Milgram studies, mm -hmm. the shocking yep. subjects just applied very harmful, potentially fatal electric shocks to their fellow students right? because an authority told them to do that. Bobby Kennedy points out that those studies were also conducted at Yale and were funded by the CIA. And so this. Okay, yeah. this is, wait, because this calls the whole thing into question. It calls, it calls the, it calls a great deal of the whole enterprise of modern American psychology into question. Yes. Is that what you mean? Yeah, but it also calls into question, like, what is the purpose and the intention of these? It just feels like, yeah, they're trying to figure out how they can snow the public and how much they can get away with. You know, like we've just seen with the pandemic being like a trial run for, you know, 
the next thing. Yeah. Um, that's super creepy. Yeah. So they knew, they knew from these experiments that they funded that they could get away with a whole lot. They could get, they could get majority, they could get a majority of people to believe in a preposterous story and do inhumane things to their fellow men and women. Well, also, what year were the Milgram experiments? Like, weren't we, was it when we were allegedly operating under Smith-Munt? Isn't the CIA supposed to be doing international fuckery, not fuckery on its own people within our own borders? Yeah, well, when you start going there, again, it becomes, this is another part of the psychology of non-perception. It's obvious. There's so many things that the CIA has been caught doing, which are against their charter which is as an international espionage organization, not supposed to operate on American soil, but all these things they did operate on American soil, including, you know, launching the psychedelic thing in the, in the 1950s. And and not to mention the fact that no one seems to have the problem that they haven't released the Kennedy assassination files, even though that's totally illegal at this point, it's just like another realm of non-perception of like, Oh, look, the intelligence agencies are breaking another law. Everything's fine. Yeah. So let me so let me now mention the next kind of pillar of the psychology of non-perception, which is uh, the theory of cognitive dissonance. Yep. Okay. So the theory of cognitive dissonance is <clears throat> right up there with Solomon Ash as the most researched concept in contemporary social psychology. Mm-hmm. And the theory of cognitive dissonance just states very simply that a normal, a normal person with normal self-esteem is not comfortable holding two dissonant ideas. And so they will either not perceive or they will rationalize in order to ease the dissonance. Hold up. How are we defining a normal person? Well, a normal person just in terms of modern psychological metrics. You know, they, they administer personality tests and there are, you know, scores. These are, you know, non-psychotic, again, a lot, you know, college students at some of the best, the, the theory of cognitive dissonance was developed at Stanford University. Well, are they only testing dumb people? Because the definition of intelligence by certain metrics is the ability to hold opposing ideas and not need them resolved. So are we talking about people of below average intelligence? No, we're talking about people really, and again, this is a theory that's been looked at a lot of different ways. So there are many, many studies and these important questions that you're asking are answered. I don't have my fingers on the data now, but um, but just like Solomon Ash's conformity studies, higher self-esteem, more creative individuals, artistic types are perfectly comfortable holding dissonant cognitions. In fact, they thrive on it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's that's what we're talking about. But nor- just normal people. Okay. Uh, intelligence is not really the question. It has more to do with a certain cognitive style and tolerance for ambiguity. And um, what's so- coming up for me, and I don't, I don't want to waylay the conversation or the track that we're on right now, is just like how many people on this planet are actually people. It just has me questioning if we're all the same or if these are just like the holograms being used to pass for people or something. But please continue. Well, it would be fun to go down that rabbit hole sometime, too, because I, I, I go there, too. I think that it's a mistake to think of Homo sapiens as a homogenous species, that, we're, that there's a great variety right. of 
of us here. And yeah. whether that's because we're we're been hybridized and have different extraterrestrial forebears or what, but the differences in personality style and in cognitive style um, are so extraordinary. It's, it's, I think we need to come up with, um, uh, paint this picture with a finer brush that we're not just homo sapiens. There's homo empath, there's homo domineers, there's homo greed, greed, you know, there are people. And when I was raising my son, it was so, it was so incredible. I just, one day I, I took him to daycare and then, you know, a bunch of little three-year-olds and they're so different. Some are just naturally compassionate and want to share their stuff. Others are, you know, trying to beat kids up and take their things. And this can't be the result of just their upbringing. They haven't really had that much upbringing yet. They're born with an agenda. Right. <clears throat> so back to cognitive dissonance. Um, you know, it's kind of common. We, we know that, say, a person who'd been subject to um, childhood sexual abuse by their parents or clergy or teachers, they will... This is a classic example of non-perception. They will repress these memories, act like it never happened. And, and not until you know later on in adult life, whatever, a psychedelic experience, therapy, hypnosis, you know, suddenly these memories will come flooding back into them. So what accounts for this non-perception? This can be explained in terms of the theory of cognitive dissonance. Because a person who is a victim of sexual abuse by their parents or their clergy has terrific cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. This person loves me. This is the person I depend on for my life. This is my pastor. And they're fucking me. They're, they're abusing me. They're harming me. Those two things do not go together. Right. And so they have to... They have to um, erase, repress, not perceive that. Yep. So that's, of course, a hard example. But when you look at, now we'll go back and look at the Kennedy assassination, it's the same thing. So here's the cognitive dissonance that I'm a, the United States of America, the greatest country in the world. We've all been hypnotized since we were little children to believe, to put our hand over our heart. This is literally a hypnotic induction. Put your hand over your heart and pledge allegiance to the flag. Mm. I can remember being a little kid. I was born in Boston. We have the American spirit. We're so fucking great. We're the greatest country in the world. One nation under God, indivisible, liberty and justice for all we're that shining city on the hill. We're the best. This concept of American exceptionalism mm -hmm. is so ingrained in every single child in this country, every day of their life until they're, whatever they are, 18 years old, right? It's, it's required that you, used to be required that you put your hand in your heart and you recite the pledge. They changed that when I was in high school, I think. We did it. Yeah. Uh, I was required to do that every morning, but I didn't never thought America is the greatest. I thought, why am I saying under God when there's this stipulation in the constitution of separation in church and state? I feel like my rights are being trampled. And then I started writing letters to the politicians. 
Yeah, well, you're you're trouble. That, and I'm sure that's been pointed out before. You know, you're. I you're don't know one. what you're talking about. <laughs> <clears throat> so think of think of that, and I mean, look at the history of the Pledge of Allegiance, right? That was that used to be where you you were you had to hold your hand out like this with your palm down. They only changed that in World War II. They thought, oh no, it's a little too close to the to the Hitler salute, and they said, put it over your heart instead. Have you ever looked up like the ancient spiritual mudra and what this what this means in terms of like spiritual technology of our bodies? No, tell me. No, I don't know. I'm I'm no, curious. Yeah, no, that's very fascinating because you know you can we're we're having this conversation as if the um, you know mind control apparatus started. What are we saying? You know Solomon Ash in the 30s, but this goes way way back. I mean this right. is. Um, you know, the elites or oligarchs controlling populations is as old as the history of civilization. Right. So, um, and so that's, uh, you know, that's the basic setup that we have is that it becomes very, very difficult for someone to believe, to go against their hypnotic induction. And do you think, or in your research, know that, um, the mandatory recitation of the Pledge Allegiance was a deliberate mind control attempt? I'm not sure about that yet. Okay. Joe Atwill knows more about that. It would be interesting to figure out the origin of that. And like- Well, it comes, it was first written by a fellow named uh, Bellamy Bellamy in the um, early part of the last century. Okay. Same instituted and then, um, like I said, it was there were a few different uh, changes in phrasing, and then during World War II, they changed the Heil, Heil part to hand over. Um, and what what that person's who, who what his affiliations were, what secret societies was he a Freemason? Exactly. You know, that would be something to ask Joe or or dig into. I don't I don't really know that yet. What's um, the guy's name? Bellamy. Yeah, Bellamy. Okay. It's not Edward Bellamy, but it's Bellamy. And he was just, um, you know, he was a a journalist, actually, I think, in um, East Coast journalist who concocted this Pledge of Allegiance. I mean, it would be interesting to see if there, I have obviously done no research, but I'm wondering where's the Rockefeller tie because they had their grubby hands in curriculum at that time. So how would a journalist be able to institute something on such a mass scale I don't know. I'll need to look into it. I'm I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. So those those are those are you know two of the real big pillars, the three, and then the other thing is um, again this concept of American exceptionalism, right? That's an interesting that's an interesting set of concepts, and here we need to bring in one of the arch villains, Henry Luce. Okay. Who I think you and I might have spoken about him a, a little bit before. You know, Henry Luce was a very, very powerful man in American culture in the, um, you know, in the middle of the last century. Henry Luce, he was the founder and publisher and editor, r- ran the whole Time Life media conglomerate. Yep. Okay. He was a Skull and Bones member. He was, um, <clears throat> according to Timothy Leary, Henry Luce was um, the person singularly responsible for the propagation of psychedelic drugs in America. Because of the the article on the mushrooms that he ran in, was it Time? Life. Life. 
That was the first thing. Mm -hmm. But then, but then there were there were um, dozens of books and other media coverage, all in enterprises that he controlled. And there's a great book for anybody that's taking notes and is uh, is literary and literate as I am, that is called um, Acid Hype. Okay. Acid Hype by a by a um, a media um, scholar, Professor Stephen Siff at the University of Wisconsin, I believe. It's the book is Acid Hype, um, the, the American Media and the Psychedelic Experience. And he, he, he this is his PhD and it, now a book showing, um, again, the just uh, explosion of interest in psychedelic drugs were mainly through Henry Luce controlled uh, publications, either books or magazines and so on like that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, Henry Luce also, um, I think it was 19, 1934, he wrote an essay in um, Life magazine uh, that uh, revived this concept of American exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. And the title of the article was The American Century. Okay. But the purpose of that article was, was to justify give Americans an excuse and help justify the imperialistic activities of the American military throughout mm -hmm. South America, that we had to do, because we were so special, we have to go over overseas and spread democracy and freedom. We have to do this. And it's, it's really something to read this article, The American Century. And you probably know that the, um, the, the important um, uh, white classified document, the project Rebuilding America's Defenses, yep. and the project for the new American century is named after Henry Luce's 1934 paper. So they, they, they accomplished the last century. And then 9-11 was the new American century. And we need a galvanizing event. And then, you know, you look at all the memes that were used to um, you know, advance the um, the wars after 9-11, like we have to go, you know, help these people. This is our, you know, our duty. And so, um, you know, Americans, 70 to 80% of Americans are placed in this position of terrific cognitive dissonance, having been hypnotized. We're in the same position as a person that's, um, you know, been abused by their church. Yep can't quite see it. They just can't quite see it. And so, um, <clears throat> and then you can trace it in the media, how, you know, certain memes are hammered. You know, like as soon as someone sort of looks, gets out of the box and to, that person is ostracized. Remember that famous case of, um, shoot, I'm forgetting his name, the handsome black uh, man with a political look, very shining light was gonna be involved in the Obama administration. He signed a petition for 9-11. Oh shit, what was his name? I'll come back to it. But those are some of the, those are some of the um, broad strokes of this psychology of non-perception and why it is impossible for people to see these.
Thanks so much for tuning in to this latest episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. I am reminding slash thanking you to and for (laughs) clicking that subscribe button for liking, for sharing, for commenting, and for leaving some kind words as a review as you are authentically inspired. As you are receiving any value from my podcast, as you dig it, as you listen regularly, consider supporting me on Patreon and or Locals, where for as little as $5 a month, you get access to all of my second half podcast interviews, as well as oodles of bonus content. Your support really goes a long way in supporting me as a journalist and an independent content creator navigate her way through a really crunchy time in terms of free speech. And as you are wanting to learn more about my work in the world, my books, my products, my quantum languaging, coaching, and consulting, you can find me at dannycats.com as well as quantumlanguaging.com. And if you're not down with a membership patronage platform and want to send me one-time donation, You can use the Bitcoin link if it actually appears on your podcast listening platform. You could also send me a one-time donation by way of PayPal at dannycats at pm.me or by way of Venmo where my username is Sadie Bloom. Again, your support means the world and makes a massive, massive difference when it comes to continuing to share this work with the world. Thank you for sharing your sacred attention with me. Thank you for remembering that you are omniscopic amazingness and for having a rockin' day. See you next time, superstars.